Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Tanya Hackney. She is what is known as a liveaboard sailor, which means that she lives on a boat. She has been living on a boat since 2009 with her family, so I am excited to get to know her, hear about her story, and how she got to where she is today and just hopes for the future and stuff like that. So Tanya, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, Sarah, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Uh, I lived aboard, I've lived aboard for, you know, more than 12 years now. I have five children that we have homeschooled from the very beginning. My oldest is now 20 and he has jumped ship. He's on his own and independent. And my youngest is 10. And she was born while we lived aboard the sailboat. And she has spent her entire life afloat. And my husband is what you would call a digital nomad. We are high school sweethearts uh, who had this sailing dream uh, forever. And we're also uh, ex-yuppies. We were living in Atlanta when we uh, ditched the American dream and went back to Florida and bought a boat. And the rest, as they say, is history. We've been then uh, traveling off and on for uh, the last 12 years. So I'm going to start with probably like the most boring question I can ask, but how do you like legally live on a boat without like a physical home address? Um, that's actually a really good question. And oddly, that's a very frequently asked question. Uh, we sold a house and we were homeschooling our kids in Pinellas County, Florida. And when I called the the school system because they were registered as homeschooled. And I said, well, we've moved on to our sailboat. It's in a different county. How do I, but we're not planning on staying in this one place. How do I handle the kids' school records? And they did not know what to do about that. They had no idea. So I ended up using my mother-in-law's address just for school correspondence. And then to get mail, we ended up with a mail service called St. Brendan's Isle. And so I have this street address, uh, some place that I've never been. I've never lived there. It's uh, just a warehouse full of mailboxes, but I live at 411 Walnut Street along with like 80,000 other people. And when we get to somewhere stable, we can request the mail be sent to us in a packet or you can pay a little bit extra per month and they will actually scan your mail. So if you have something important that you need to see, uh, then you uh, then you can have them scan it. Um, the hardest mail is when you're on a little island and you you just can't get it. Um, I'm, I think the most pressing thing was uh, the 2016 election. We voted from Grenada and trying to get mail from Grenada, you know, to get that ballot in on time was, was challenging. Yeah, that's very interesting. So what is it like um, for your oldest son to now be off on his own and no longer on the boat, how is he able to stay connected with you? Uh, he's a great kid. I'm so proud of him. He's hasn't called for help. He's not, you know, there's no failure to launch. He's uh, working at an airport uh, prepping planes and he's taking his, he's getting his um, pilot's license and he's written a novel and he's a really lovely, interesting person. And he called me, uh, early September. And he said, I really 
really miss the boat and he wanted to come home. So he came home for a long weekend, but that was the first time I had seen him. I mean, that he had been back on the boat since January. And he, the first thing he said when he came back on the boat, he was like, oh my gosh, this place is so small. I think he forgot, you know, you forget we live in a really tiny, tiny little space. So even though it's a a 48 foot catamaran, the main living space where we all hang out is like a 15 by 15 foot room. And there are seven of us. So uh, I can't remember what your original question is. You've got me rambling about my awesome kid. Um, Reintegration was hard. I think coming back to land is hard. After you've lived an extraordinary life, it's very hard to go back to sort of a normal life whatever that means. Right. So can you describe what the boat itself is like? You know, you just mentioned this like 15 by 15 room. So, you know, what is it like open air, like, you know, down below? Can you take us on a little bit of a listening tour of the boat? Well, sure. I'm trying to think like maybe the context that people would have would be like Kevin Costner's Waterworld, like a big multi-hull sailing boat. Uh, It's a catamaran, so it has two hulls with a main cabin in the middle. And the main cabin is that 15 by 15 foot space. And in that space is, you know, a a desk area, a little living room, a little L-shaped sofa, a settee is what what it's called, Uh, a table that seats eight people comfortably. And Uh, a galley, which is actually surprisingly big for a boat. Most boat people come aboard my boat and think that I live in a mansion. Most house people come aboard my boat and they think that I live in a double wide. So (laughs) I think it's all in your perspective. Um, After you step aboard, you would step into the cockpit, which is where the steering wheel is and where there's another table for, it's an outdoor outdoor space where we can sit and have dinner when the weather's nice. Um, it It is somewhat enclosed, so you're protected from wind and rain. And then once you step inside, if you step to the right or to the left, it takes you down below. Uh, two little companionways that lead to the hulls. And in each hull, you have two cabins, one forward and one aft. And they're uh, full-size beds in these cabins. They're up off the ground, so I'm climbing in and out of a, a bunk every night. Uh And at some point, everybody has had to share with somebody else because there are only four beds and there are seven family members. So how often is it that you are landlocked to a port versus traveling other places? Oh, that's a really good question. We are, uh, we, we made this a lifestyle. And so that really changes the way that we, we view schedules and calendars and travel seasons. Uh, A lot of people will do this as a sabbatical. They'll take their kids out of school. They'll take all the money they've saved up. They'll buy a boat. They'll cross the Atlantic and cruise in the Mediterranean. They'll cross back over the ocean, sell the boat and go back to their land life. And that that pushes a schedule that's kind of crazy. Like you really feel pressed to travel because you don't want to waste a single day. We've been doing this for 12 years. We've never crossed an ocean. We have a kid that gets severely seasick and um, we've learned through the through the process of traveling um, kind of what our limitations are as a family and as a couple and, uh, you know, on our boat and kind of what we really want to do and what we really like to do is live aboard an island hop. And so that's what we've been doing. And the number of days that we're actually sailing and moving from point A to point B during the year is very small. It's a very small number. Maybe, I mean, in a good year when we're island hopping a lot, you're talking like a month out of the year. A day here, a day there, three or four days there. The longest we've been at sea 
continuously is um, eight days. And that was between Georgetown, Bahamas and the east side of Puerto Rico. And that was in 2016. And then we spent three and a half years traveling all throughout the Caribbean. We did a big circle from east to west. And um, and now we've been here in port in um, in the Florida Keys. We've been here for two years. We've taken a couple of sailing trips in that two years. But really, like, this is the longest we've ever sat in any one place. I mean, part of that is obviously the pandemic has changed travel, at least temporarily, maybe permanently. And some of it is that we have teenagers that are are launching into their own lives and adventures. And that means we need to be a stable platform for them. And do your kids ever want to have more of a home life on land, especially since you do have one that gets seasick? Uh, the, the charm of our lifestyle isn't really the days on the ocean, although I happen to love days on the ocean and I love overnight passages with you know, the stars shining and all of that. Uh, Some of us love the water and some of us don't love the water. The charm is being in a cool place and meeting new people and hiking up volcanoes and jumping in waterfalls and swimming with whale sharks and uh, meeting other sailors, especially during hurricane season where they kind of stack up in the various hurricane holes, we call them. Um, We have spent a lot of time in the Florida Keys over the years. We have touched base here Pretty much any time we're going from the east coast of Florida to the west coast of Florida, if we're coming north or coming south or to and from the Bahamas. And so we've built a stable community here and our kids have very close friends. I would say that this is where they feel, you know, home is. And so we've had the best of both worlds where they've had all of these new exciting experiences, um, either in solitude with just their family traveling in isolated places or, you know, gobs and gobs of people, you know, in a new location. And having these stable long-term friendships, which I think is really, really important. I mean, it it really has helped them reintegrate because they already had a group of friends. I think it would have been much, much harder to come back to the U.S. without having that, um, I guess, that cushion to fall back on. And is it difficult or is it a possibility to be able to stay connected online in all of these different places you're going? Yes. Although I would say, I think it's really hard. We're kind of like a hundred percent in wherever you are. You're, when you're in a new place and you're investing yourself fully, you're learning a new language, you're immersed in a new culture, you're, you know, eating new food and hanging out with new people. It's not that we don't think about people back home. It's just that there's an actual time limitation for how much you can communicate with every single human being that you know. So we end up being very much like fully wherever we are. And when we come back to the United States and we're visiting with family or friends, we are fully here, you know, with the people that we love. And when we're gone, we're fully in the new place. So it makes, I guess I'm, I'm a bad correspondent in that sense. I mean, people keep track of us using our blog. Our families would follow our progress uh, on a digital map. (laughs) Like, where are they? Where are they? Are they safe? Are they on their way somewhere? Are they on their way back? Um, And then, you know, depending on how expensive phone calls or internet, internet can be really expensive in places. and, And then you're spending a lot less time, you know, communicating. And I was never on Facebook. I, Facebook is like a completely new thing for me. And I can't say that I, I, I love it. I love it and I hate it. But I was never, you know, trying to keep up with everybody. Mm-hmm. 
And I think to your point of like immersing yourself and where you are, like that is so important for anyone who's traveling, whether short term or on a longer basis. So can you talk a little bit about the different cultures and some of the different places that you've been and how you've been able to immerse yourself and learn new languages and and talk with the people around you? That is probably the my favorite part about our life is is really getting outside of you know not just the box of our house but really the box of our culture. Um, I was actually thinking about this earlier and went so far as to to look it up. There's a Mark Twain quote that I love: "Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts." Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. I just love that quote because it, it traveling opened my eyes. Meeting all these new people from different walks of life really opened my eyes. Um, living on an island where I may be the only person who, do, who doesn't speak Spanish. I mean, I do now. <laughs> or living uh, in a... In an, on an island where you're the only white person. I mean, it's an important role reversal to have. It's really important to, to kind of turn your binoculars back on your own culture. When you're immersed in a new culture, you question, you question things. It's a fresh view, not only of their life, but also of your life. And there's nothing better, in my opinion, than cross-cultural friendship for destroying, uh, you know, the constructs that we humans set, set up that divide us. The I know they say birds of a feather flock together. It's absolutely true. But there's nothing wrong with flying with another flock for a while. It really helps you question your own assumptions about life and about, about humanity. And you start to realize that you have more in common than you have uh, different from each other. Everybody eats, for example. I mean, we did a tour of the island's you know, by tasting. And I love to eat. So, and I love to cook and I love to learn new recipes. And we made friends with people everywhere over food. Food is such an amazing way to bring people together. And you realize we all eat. What do you eat? Here's what I like to eat. Here, let me show you how to make this thing that I know. And, you know, we set up these food exchanges that become friendships. And did you travel much before getting to be on the boat full time? So I have always had a, a bad case of wanderlust. My uh, my dad is a world traveler, and we were broke growing up. We did not have a lot of money, but that n- never stopped my parents. So, so they threw us in the back of our station wagon. Um, I don't get car sick or seasick for that matter, and so I was the one that was you know like stuffed in the way back. I'm I'm dating myself. I realize that by saying the, you know the station wagon with the rear facing window. <laughs> so I was the one looking at where we had been as opposed to where we were going. Uh, so we, we drove all over the United States. Uh, I lived in Taiwan for a very brief period of time. My dad was doing some construction in, uh, in Taipei, and my mom actually was pregnant with my brother and dragged, you know, two little girls, my, me and my sister, you know, 24-hour airplane flights to Taiwan, and she had my brother in a Taipei hospital. Um, I actually honeymooned in Mexico which was really fun. And I spent a semester abroad in Paris when I was in college. And so 
that was a really immersive experience where you're learning a new language and really, you know, being a part of a different culture. So yes, I love to travel. I've always wanted to travel. Once we had a bunch of kids, we were like, how the heck are we going to travel with all these people? Can you even imagine packing up all your stuff and getting on an airplane as much as we wanted to do it? It was much easier to, you know, pack all of our stuff, sell half of our, you know, sell most of our stuff, I guess, move on to a boat and then travel with the house. And we could have done an RV, but my husband loves to sail and this was a really cool way. We got the microcosm of the world in the Caribbean. So I feel like we got to travel all over the world uh, by island hopping. Right. Now, you just saying that about your mom uh, being pregnant reminded me that you said earlier your youngest child uh, has only known life at sea. And so I'm curious to know how it was being pregnant on board full time and then were you, did you like have to be stationed somewhere like in the time frame of what you thought you were going to have the baby? So we got pregnant and then promptly left the United States and we were traveling in the Bahamas. I had found a midwife in Sarasota at this great little birthing home. I did not want to have a hospital birth. And she had given me this sort of like checklist. And she just said, whenever you can get to a midwife or a hospital, you know, have them do your urine check and check your blood sugar and, you know, check to make sure that you're gaining the right amount of weight. I mean, this was not my first horse and pony show, I guess, because there was baby number five. I would know if there was something wrong. And so we just traveled island to island, and I would check in from time to time with little island midwives. Uh, I did learn on that trip that babies in the Bahamas are only born in Nassau and Freeport in the big hospitals. And so all the pregnant women go to Nassau or Freeport and stay with family or rent a place for the last month of pregnancy and then have a baby in a hospital. So that is not really what I wanted to do. Originally, I had said to my husband, don't worry about it. We'll just stop off at an island, have a baby, and keep going. Babies are born everywhere. It's no big deal. And he looked at me sideways, and he's like, uh, yeah, talk to me in six months when you're climbing in and out of the dinghy with groceries, and you weigh, you know, you look like a hippo, and you aren't sleeping well at night. Then we can talk about it. And, you know, you might want your mom and your sister and your family around you after that baby's born. And he was totally right. You know, I dismissed him at the time, but he was totally right. And we sailed back when I was seven months pregnant and went back to Florida. We had also uh, lived with the boat without renovating it very much. We had just wanted to get out there traveling. And so because we lived with the boat for a year, sort of, it wasn't very kid friendly. And so when we came back to have the baby, we also built a sleeping space for a baby and we, you know, redid the upholstery and rebuilt some cabinetry in the galley just so that it would be family friendly. We also decided that we were going to make a, a go of it and not, it's, this is not a trip. It's a lifestyle. I don't think we knew that at the beginning, whether it was going to be a trip or a lifestyle. So what was it like then at the beginning, making the decision to buy this boat and leaving everything else behind? Um, just terrifying. <laughs> well, what do you expect? It was like, everything is telling you, don't do this. You're 30 years old. I don't think we were even 30. I don't even think we were 30 at the time. We were in our 20s and we're like, you know, instead of buying that house further out in the suburbs and buying the nicer car and, you know, doing this thing that everyone else was doing, 
maybe we should sell everything and buy a boat. And everyone's like, what are you thinking? What are you even thinking? Like, how are you going to fund your 401k if you're crossing an ocean? So it's kind of this swimming against the stream. You definitely have to to silence fears and criticisms and self-limiting beliefs in order to go do something different. And it is scary. It's physically scary, like being on a boat where you don't have a lot of control over the elements, for example, is is terrifying. And yet it's also exhilarating and rewarding. And without sort of making yourself do the scary thing, you don't get the rewards from having accomplished, you know, this unusual, unique experience. So it was very scary, but we did it anyway. And would you be willing to talk a little bit about like the financial side and how you're able to live on a boat without going into a job every day? Yeah, I would be happy to talk about that, actually, because the nuts and bolts of dreaming, no one ever talks about that. Everyone has this pie in the sky idea. But then how do you actually do the thing? This is, I think, what bogs many of us down and why we end up settling for a smaller life than we imagined. It's because we don't know how to get from point A to point B. So for us, we had this crazy idea. Uh, It immediately became clear that we were not ready to do it you know, when we were teenagers. So we did the normal thing. We got jobs. I was an elementary school teacher in Atlanta. My husband had a brick and mortar job as a computer consultant. Uh, We had two kids. We had cars and a house. I, I totally credit our ability to break free with making a really important decision when we were young. And that was We knew that if we were going to have children, that we would want one of us to be able to focus on the kids and not have to be, you know, scraping together a paycheck. So when we planned our finances as a young couple, we planned to only live on one income. And that that priority right there probably helped save us so much trouble. I know a lot of people who have dug out of debt and who have learned to live on less and who have prioritized experiences over collecting stuff. But we got we got a really big head start because we had already decided to live within our means and to not go into debt and to pay off any existing debt and to only live on one income so that when I quit teaching to stay home with my kids, we didn't feel that loss. I mean, yeah, we lost gravy, but we didn't lose the meat and potatoes. And then my husband was building a business that actually could could be he could become a digital nomad. Um, He put in a lot of hard hours. He traveled for work. He sat in traffic for hours every day. He had a job job and a salary and, you know, only a certain number of vacation days. We've both done the rat race and we didn't really like it. It wasn't very fulfilling. And I'm really glad that we were able to break free. And the reason we were able to break free is because we prioritized making memories collecting verbs, I say, instead of nouns, instead of uh, sort of the materialistic path that our culture was sort of pushing us toward. I'm trying to think if there were any other like practical things that we did. Um, we also tried to live simply. Uh, we we became very self-sufficient. We, I learned how to cook and bake and grind my own grain. And we gave up our dishwasher one year and decided to do our dishes by hand because we thought that that would be good preparation for living on a boat. It is. It is good preparation. Uh, I think 
if you're if you really want to accomplish something, you have to almost put yourself in the mindset as if you're already achieving it. And you know, pretend as you're living in your house that you're already living on your boat. What are the things that you would how are you going to live? And we began to think that way. And when you're thinking that way all the time, it it makes this sort of impossible thing very possible. So now we're coming up on the holiday season, the gift giving galore. So obviously the boat does not have a lot of space. You know, you just talked about making memories, not necessarily having stuff. So can you talk a little bit about the process of having to sell a lot of your stuff and then how you do the holidays and celebrations without accumulating more and more stuff? Yes, I would love to talk about that. Um, we have a very unconventional view of holidays and of, of birthdays and Christmas and all of that. Um, we are kind of lucky in that my oldest child is very inquisitive and he started asking questions about Santa Claus when he was like four, like way, way, way before they're supposed to ask about Santa Claus. And I made a promise that I would never lie to my children. It's a very hard promise to keep because it's easy to tell white lies to your children and you want to protect them from things and you don't want to always tell them the whole truth. Um, but when he asked me point blank, is Santa Claus a real person? I was like, how can I, how can I hem and haw? I could talk about St. Nicholas, that he was a real person. He has a really inspiring story, you know, from the third century after Christ. Uh, but the fat man in the red suit bringing presents down your chimney I'm not going to be able to tell that story with a straight face. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be able to sleep with myself at night if, if he asked me, like, tell it to me straight. And then I, I didn't. So he never really believed in Santa Claus. And since he was the oldest child, he then, of course, bequeathed his knowledge to everyone else. So we never really played the Santa game. They always knew that gifts came from the people that loved them, from their parents and grandparents and things like that. And when we moved on to the boat, there was no, no more room for that stuff. Uh, obviously, we sold you know, massive amounts of stuff. When we moved aboard, like you said, we gave away 90% of our stuff, um, sold some, gave some away. It seemed like every time we had uh, something to give away, we would meet the right person who needed that thing. I was able to give like a lot of homeschool stuff to a family who had just begun to homeschool. So I was able to bequeath all of these, you know, children's books that I couldn't carry with me. It made, it made giving, getting rid of the stuff a joyful experience. It wasn't painful the way that I thought that it was going to be. And then once we were on the boat, we didn't want any new stuff. One of our ethics is if you get something new, you have to give something away. Like the boat is full. It's full to bursting. We have seven people and all of their stuff and they're physically bigger than they were when we brought them aboard. If you're going to buy something new, you'd better be ready to give something up. And at Christmas, we just couldn't, we couldn't do the piles of presents under the tree. We do something as a culture that's I don't like it at all. We tell our kids that stuff won't make you happy, that money can't buy happiness. And then on Christmas morning, there's this orgy of presents and they're, you know, the wrapping is flying and the glow is everywhere. And you have this like feeling of Christmas. And we lied to our kids. We said money doesn't make you happy. Stuff doesn't make you happy. And then we give them this, you know, endorphin rush on Christmas morning. And they're like, yeah, stuff does make me happy. And it's a myth because it's a very temporary feeling. So we were like, how can we prevent this from happening? How can we live truly where we say stuff doesn't bring you happiness? And then we live by that. 
And so the obvious thing is to find happiness where it really lies, which is in deep connection and relationships and um, emotional fulfillment, which is, you know, hard work (laughs) and costly in a way that buying something isn't costly. Uh, So the year that we knew we were successful, we had traveled to the Bahamas and I was like, well, I'll buy stocking stuffers when I get there. It's not going to be a big deal. We still stuff little tiny things in a stocking. You know, I still make my mom cinnamon rolls every Christmas morning. Like we have these traditions that aren't based on piles of presents. Um, I had bought a jigsaw puzzle and tucked it away, you know, just in case we got bored. And we got to the Bahamas and we were in really remote places and there were no, there was nowhere to buy anything. So I was like, oh, Christmas morning is going to be like, this is the first Christmas morning where we don't have anything. Like... I've got my mom's cinnamon rolls and a jigsaw puzzle. And how is this going to go down? And we went snorkeling that day in this place called the Octopus's Garden. And it was amazing. It was magical. Like the color of the water, it's like a, a bottle of Bombay gin. I mean, if you just look at a bottle of Bombay gin and fill it with colorful fish, that was our Christmas present. And so later that day, we were able to you know, get enough of a cell signal to call my brother and his family. And I heard my kids talking to their cousins and telling them what an amazing day they'd had, uh, you know, doing this puzzle with their brothers and sisters and having cinnamon rolls and going snorkeling. And I was like, we did it. We did it. We did something amazing. Like we didn't have the Christmas orgy and everything's fine. Everyone's happy. Like we made this amazing memory and it didn't, you know, like the in the Grinch Who Stole Christmas, Christmas didn't come in a box. It was really, really cool. And then we just continued to do that for all the years since then. We take any money that grandparents or friends or anybody wants to give us something, we say, don't give us anything. Just give us money and we're going to go make a memory and we'll send you pictures. And we've been able to do just the coolest things, uh, ski trips. And um, one year we were in Cartagena, Colombia. And one year we were in the cloud forest of Panama. I mean, like crazy awesome trips. Obviously, we're supplementing, but we've chosen to take that money. And instead of buying something that's going to end up in a landfill, we've bought memories that will hopefully last a lifetime. And do you do the same thing for birthdays? Very similar, actually. Only when there's a year where we really just can't swing a kid's birthday wish, then we might, you know, okay, we can't do the thing that you wanted to do. Is there something that you really want? But typically, we're able to fulfill a birthday wish. Like, what do you want to do for your birthday? We don't say, what do you want to get for your birthday? What do you want to do for your birthday? And then they come up with with something, and we try and make it happen. And there have been some really cool opportunities, just horseback riding through the rainforest or um, going on ATV trails in the wilderness. Um, My son, Sam, recently asked for snow for Christmas. He really... I think because they were raised in Florida and raised on a boat and are always hot, <laughs> he thought like the coolest thing would be snow and his birthday's in February. So he knows there's snow somewhere. And um, with the help of my mother-in-law who works for Allegiant Airlines and my close friend who lives in Maine, I was able to give him snow for his birthday. And it was, it was the best. So yeah, we do that. We do that as much as possible. Collect verbs and not nouns. And so you mentioned that you originally were an elementary school teacher, and of course, now you're homeschooling. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two and maybe if there are challenges in homeschooling? 
I feel like this has such broad application right now because I think at no time in history have so many people sort of experienced homeschooling or what they were calling homeschooling. <laughs> I mean, I can't even imagine a school being thrust upon me. I chose to homeschool my children. Uh, no one said to me, your kids can't come back to school on Monday. I'm sorry, you might be homeschooling for up to a year, year and a half. I mean, it would have been really, really hard. I had a lot of sympathy for everybody. And I had old friends who uh, contacted me and they were like, how do you do this? I have no idea how to do this. This is horrible. And so the first thing I would say about homeschooling is uh, homeschool is not school at home. I think what a lot of people were doing on the fly during COVID was school at home uh, or school virtually, which is really hard. It's really hard to teach, especially little kids without hands-on and on location and without manipulatives and conversation and community. Those, those things are really hard. I taught kindergarten. I can't even imagine trying to do it on a screen. So homeschooling is can be so many things. For us, we were fly by the seat of your pants. Very much our curriculum was driven by a location. Where are you and what can you learn about? Um, I remember doing a crossing to the Bahamas and it was a very calm day. So we were motoring across the, the Gulf Stream, you know, this big, beautiful, deep body of water and there was sargassum floating everywhere. So we grabbed a net and scooped up some sargassum and put it in this clear plexiglass tank that we had and we gave it a little shake and you could see all of these camouflage sea creatures in the sargassum. And we pulled out our microscope that we carry and we started looking at things under the microscope and plankton and algae. And we found this teeny tiny little seahorse that was perfectly camouflaged with the sargassum. That was science for the day. And I could give you, you know, a thousand other examples um, where history, we did a history trip up the East Coast one year and they were learning about, um, they were learning about slavery and about, you know, the Civil War. And we were walking through a plantation and um, in Charleston, there's a, a really cool place and the slave huts are still there because they were built out of brick. And it's a museum now that explains different aspects of slave life. Like you cannot replicate that from a book. You just can't. So there's a lot of real life learning that happens. Um, all my kids can cook and they can bake and they can fish and they can, uh, they can do like a million things that they would never have learned inside a classroom. That's a really cool opportunity. At the same time, I still think they need to learn to multiply and they still have to do algebra. And of course, I taught all of them to read, which is sometimes an arduous and painful task. And so sometimes it's unpleasant because you're making them work and they would rather play. And so, you know, it's like equal parts hard and amazing, like the rest of life, probably. Is there anything that you do not like teaching them or like struggle to get them to understand? Long division. Why is long division so hard? I don't know why long, long division always involves crying. Always. It always involves crying. I can make you cry so fast. <laughs> like, I don't care whatever little acronym you come up with for like divide, multiply, subtract, bring down. We use like dad makes super burgers. And they're always like, what do I do now? I'm like, dad makes super burgers, divide, multiply, subtract, bring down. It's just a hard skill to master. And once they learn how to do it, it's not hard. But in the middle of that, I really hate teaching long division. I don't know why. Yeah, there's a few things probably. Uh, once a kid can read, they can kind of teach themselves. So um, 
what we do is not a very structured homeschooling. It probably is. I would say we would do structured things in the morning and then in the afternoon, the kids were free to pursue the things that they wanted to learn. Um, so music and art and, you know, baking and drawing and singing, like all those wonderful creative pursuits. I never forced any of that because I didn't want to take the joy out of it. The things that they really need to learn uh, how to write, how to read, how to do basic math. Those are the things that I kind of stood over them with the crack, cracking the whip. Like <laughs> you will learn how to multiply. Uh, so yeah, there were some tears over a long division. And you think I would have gotten it right by now, but I have five kids and I think I made all five of them cry. <laughs> oh goodness. Now, what about like, as they get older, teaching them to drive or preparing them to be able to get like a GED. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm laughing because the year that we came back, we came back from the Caribbean in 2019 and I had a 16, a 17 and an 18 year old who had never driven a car. They've been driving our dinghy, you know, our 13 foot uh, aluminum bottomed inflatable with a 30 horsepower Suzuki. They've been driving that since they were nine years old. They didn't, they had a Coast Guard license for it, but they didn't need like, you need some rules of the road, but you weren't worried about them crashing into another car. You weren't worried about them dying in the dinghy. And all of a sudden we're, we come back and we resurrect our old suburban and I'm trying to teach three teenagers to drive at the same time. I thought having three toddlers at the same time was hard, but I have to tell you like, Teaching teenagers to drive is terrifying. And now I have so much sympathy for my mom and my dad who tried to teach me to drive. And now, <laughs> but they're, so, they're alive. They all learned. Uh, I can take all the blame and all the credit for their education, including learning to drive. So it was hard. That was really hard. We drove in a lot of circles around the block, like, like you remember doing when you learned how to drive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so does your oldest then also have a GED that he could then go to college or a brick and mortar building to continue learning if he wanted? Well, we are fortunate enough to live in Florida. And in Florida, they have this wonderful dual enrollment program where if you can pass the entrance exams, you can take college classes for high school credit, basically getting simultaneous credit for high school and college um, at a community college for free and all the credits transfer to a Florida State University. So we came back, our 16, 17, and 18-year-old promptly took placement exams and started taking college classes. They basically skipped, I mean, they had each done some homeschool high school, which was, you know, whatever curriculum that we had picked. And I was writing their transcripts myself and, you know, trying to make sure that it was rigorous enough that there could be an equivalent, like, so that somebody could look at our transcripts and it would makes sense. Um, and then they were able to get all these credits. And so our oldest two, I think, are finishing their last credit for a two-year degree that they got basically for free. And then they can transfer if they want to. Although my oldest is now doing, you know, his he's going to pilot school. He's probably not going to take those last two years right now. My second one is, uh, he's a motorhead. He loves engines. He, you know, has had a drill in his hand for as long as I've known him. He loves tools. He's fixing up an old car. He's probably going to do trade school after his after he gets his AA. And then my daughter, Sarah, she's she's the wild card. She may end up um, getting that four-year degree. 
But we sort of, you know, what we modeled for them was a life outside the box. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised that they are not following sort of the prescribed uh, course (laughs) that I did when I was a kid. You know, I knew when I went to kindergarten that I was going to college. Uh, I just knew it was like a, you know, speeding train you hop on and it takes you to this destination. And we've shown them that there is a very different kind of destination for every single human being, kind of like whatever you want to do, go after it. Right. And I think that's great that, you know, they aren't doing that like prescribed sort of uh, path and like they have these great options and the options that Florida gives you uh, for, for getting that college credit is, is really great. I think it's something that you don't necessarily like think about as a, like, I'm not attending a school. I'm not, you know, doing this very specific regimented program to, to go forward. Now, I don't think I really have any more specific questions for you, but I'd love to give you the opportunity to just talk about anything else that you think would be important for the listeners to hear. I think the most important thing that someone could learn from our life is probably that if you have a dream, it's not impossible. If, a, you know, a, a workaholic guy and a neurotic girl can marry and have kids and move aboard a boat and sail around, you know, and somehow figure out how to do that life outside the box. I think it's possible, you know, for anybody to do whatever it is that they want to do. It's the figuring out what are the, you know, million tiny steps and decisions and sacrifices that you have to make to do it, but it's so worth it. Um, I felt so passionately about that, about that message of, you know, overcoming your fears or living despite your fears uh, to go do something extraordinary that I wrote a book about it. And um, my memoir came out this year and it's not a book that I wrote for sailors. It's a book that I wrote um, for anybody, for anybody who has a crazy dream and wants to, to read some life lessons um, about, about living a life with purpose. And so, um, you know, little shameless self-promotion here. Uh, <laughs> the book is called Leaving the Safe Harbor, The Risks and Rewards of Raising a Family on a Boat. And it's a collection, as much sea stories as it is life lessons. Um, the sailing is a, is a wonderful metaphor for life. And so even if you've never stepped foot on a boat, I think uh, whoever you are out there, you could appreciate um, some of the life lessons we learned. Definitely. Now, at the end of every episode, I do ask a random question, usually not very much about what we've talked about, um, but I, I think this is going to be a little bit to what we're talking about, but still, I think, random enough. And that question is, if you could have one physically big ticket item, not necessarily like big ticket dollar figure item, but something that you can't bring on the boat, but you would love to have, what would that item be? You are asking a person who has everything she has ever wanted and probably more than I've ever wanted. What item would I have? Okay, I know what it is. It's a (sighs) bathtub. It's a bathtub. If I could have a bathtub, I miss the bathtub that we had in our house. It's like the only thing that I miss about living in a house. And even if I had a bathtub, like even if we could figure out how to install one on Take Two, um, 
the amount of water that you would have to make with your desalinator, the number of hours you would have to run your generator, or how many sunny days it would take to fill the solar pan, you know, fill the batteries with solar to make enough water and then to heat the water using your, you know, the the generator, you know, a heat exchanger to create the hot water to fill that. It's impossible. It's an impossible situation. So I guess that's a completely unachievable um, object. For me, it's a bath. I'd love a bath. All right, that brings this episode to a close. I will, of course, be leaving links to Tanya's book if you would like to check it out and a link to her blog as well if you'd like to see where she is headed and links to her social media as well. All of that will be in the description of this episode or you can find it on our website in the tab for social media of guests. That's where everything lives after episodes are posted. And of course, if you would like to connect with the podcast here, the best way is to go to that website, which is in the description. It'll bring you to all of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So I'd love if you go and like all of those pages and continue to support the podcast. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, feel free to just send me an email. I love hearing new stories about different walks of life. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, that information is in the description as well. So thank you so much, Tanya, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time, bye. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share a little piece of that story.